0: Case number, two, zero, two, zero, one, zero, three, zero. Investigators, Adam and Evan. Subject matter,
1: wildfire. Welcome to Case Study, I'm Evan. I'm Adam. And today we're going to be talking about wildfire so for those of you familiar with the two of us we grew up in southern california and there were some pretty serious fires in our youth in the area um the 2003 cedar fire which set the record in california for the largest fire to the date of the fire and the 2007 witch fire witch creek fire uh was also another large fire and now these days we're seeing more and more large wildfires and my personal experience is as a forestry major i have a a, i'm an accredited forester through the society of american foresters my degrees in forestry and i was a wildland firefighter one summer i've done range management i've done forestry i've done gis mapping I have a lot of experience working in the realm of fire and that was what i studied in college my my certificate was fire ecology and management
0: what about you adam so yeah we since we grew up you know in southern california it was always a big deal i remember in 2003 we had oh man it was like we went to school and it was the sky was gray but not from clouds it was from ash and I remember very vividly walking out of my house and seeing over the hill that was nearby fire, like a flame, a fire line coming over the crest of that hill and to me that was like the scariest thing as a kid and part of the reason why actually that's one of my like big fears is still fire because it can be so destructive and it can impact you indiscriminately like If you live in a fire zone, you have to worry about fire insurance covering your house. You have to worry about evacuation routes. You have to worry about maintaining a safe perimeter around your house, things like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, that leads us right into some some of the topics I wanted to talk about is these days, we, we live in a very changed landscape, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk about how we got to where we are today in terms of fire, because 2003, this, the Cedar Fire in San Diego didn't happen out of nowhere. It happened through decades of policy and fire suppression and just changes in the landscape. Like Adam mentioned, living in a fire zone, more and more people are moving into the wooey which is WUI. It's the wildland urban interface. And it's typically defined as living near wildland. Some people have specific definitions. There are specific definitions by FEMA. But in general, if you live near open space, if you live near forest, if you live near grasslands, if you live near chaparral, you live in the WUI. And San Diego and Southern California are just chock full of Louie because when you look at our topography, which is another point we'll get to, we have canyon networks dotting the entire landscape, which like I said, the the fire was burning over the ridge. There's canyon networks all over in that area where we are. And that's part of one of the challenges is more and more people are spreading out into areas and we have open space preserves. We have places where houses just can't get built. And so it remains the native landscape or altered native landscape. And that's Area is still susceptible to burning. And in the past, going all the way back pre-European civilization on this continent, we know that the native peoples, the indigenous peoples to North America used fire to manage the landscape. Now, we know this through dendrochronology, which is the study of trees and time, dendro being tree, time being that. But what it is, is the study of tree rings. And what we're able to do is we're able to chart back into the past and we can find burn scars. It's this really cool effect effect because trees only grow in that outer ring around the tree. That's the the cambium that's growing. And when you have a burn that comes through and pushes up against one side of the tree, it scars it and the regrowth comes in and it kind of re-encircles it as it's going and then eventually you heal up. When we cut a tree down, we can see that scar. And what we can do is we can go back in old indigenous housing and villages and we can take a sample out of the building materials they used for those and we can compare it to other building materials Materials and other materials from other locations. And we can chart out when fires happen in the landscape and build a dendrochronological record. And the, the dendrochronology lab in Tucson, I don't remember which school it is. I think it's in Tucson. One of the Arizona big universities has a dendrochronological record for all of the Southwest and it's amazingly detailed. And so we know fires were occurring across the landscape. What we struggle to know is how much of that was the indigenous people's lighting fire and how much was natural fire or a natural started fire. And we can tell that there's fire on the landscape. We don't necessarily know how much was actually being managed. But going back into California and San Diego and and Southern California. When some of the original Spanish explorers came into the area, they named one of the bays as the Bay of Smoke they were sailing in and they, the sky was just filled with smoke and we don't necessarily know that it was not from like the cooking fires and indigenous people fires, but we know that fires in the area. We know that's a native thing. And when we look at a lot of the native vegetation, it's designed to burn.
0: So I guess my question is like, do we have any extent or do we have any knowledge of, of the extent of the fires of past other than, you know, looking at these, you know, dendrochronology from building materials, do we have any other sort of records that would show how big these fires were and how do they compare to fires of today? So we can go back to pretty
1: far not ancient not really pre-european settlement on the continent but we can go back into the 1700s and 1800s and what we can do is when we have multiple tree records across the landscape when when trees live in the southwest two to three hundred years and they have burn scars we can track where the burn scars line up from the sampling so we can say this fire matches this fire that's the same fire we don't know, right? It's science. It's, it's, we believe, we, we, we theorize that these are the same fires and we can build a record and, and extrapolate how large they were. So, yeah, up to a certain point in time, we can say, look, there's, these are the size of fires we're expecting to see. And from there, they build a fire return interval, how often we expect fire to burn through the landscape. And then from there, you can build a fire regime, which is how the area typically burns and, and all sorts of fire can characteristics. There's seven main fire characteristics in the fire regime, which will be linked in the show notes, because I'm sorry, Professor Thode, I forgot them. (laughs) So there's all sorts of things that impact how you build the fire regime, and that defines how the area burns. So kind of bringing it back to Southern California, the chaparral is intended to burn just hot as all get out. It burns hard. It burns fast. It burns hot and so what we believe our understanding of how the chaparral was managed in the past is it was frequent fire the chaparral burns up real happy it it grows really quick and then a new fire comes through and our understanding was was that native peoples were managing these fires sometimes they were lighting them sometimes they were using native lightning strikes and what was happening was deer game animals prefer fresher vegetation younger vegetation to eat so it was a more favorable grounds for the animals in the area and because because you didn't have overgrown chaparral, is more favorable hunting habitats. It was easier to hunt in them. So our understanding is is that in, in Southern California, a lot of these fires were were managed. Now, in other parts of the West, we have to look at all of all of North America really, because there's different fire regimes across the entire state or uh, country. In the Northern Pacific, it is very wet. Things don't burn often. But what we found is is looking at again the dendrochronology. What we find is is that when they burn, they burn in time of drought, they burn in times of stress, and they tend to burn in a high severity fire regime. Now, if you have any experience with with fire and with forestry, the common saying is it depends, because not every forest type up in the northern Pacific burns in, in a high severity thing. Some trees are better adapted to last through a fire that burns them. Douglas fir have thick bark, sequoias have thick bark. They'll make it through.
0: So I have a dumb question. Since I am not an expert in trees, and you are how do you define trees being stressed
1: well there are much smarter people than me that can define it through like literal respiratory rates in the cells one of one of the big things that they did in the sequoias during a lot of the stress in california was they were going up and they were measuring how much the cells were respirating in the like upper canopies and using that as a causal correlating factor for stress and drought and all these things. But in general, you can define stress through trees get stressed when they are attacked by insects, when they're attacked by disease. And and the the big one is drought. Trees struggle in drought. Kind of like humans. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a given. It's a plant. It needs water. That's just like its whole thing. So what we've found over the last however many years, is droughts are becoming more and more common, more and more frequent. They're becoming worse, they're becoming longer, and it's stressing the forests on levels not seen but there's more to the story than just we're seeing more drought. One of the biggest factors in why our fires are burning as large as they are today, and, and and obviously the big one is climate change. I'm going to table that. We are going to talk about climate change in a little bit, probably after the break. But the biggest lead up to our fires today is how the United States managed the fires in the past. So we've talked about how the native peoples managed the fire. Now let's talk about how the United States manage the fires. And to do that, we're going to go way back and look at some of our early fires in the United States, because we've always had large fires in the US. In the 1800s, we had large fires. The Miramichi fire in 1825 was 3 million acres. That was in the east. And a large part of that was logging slash. And when you look at a bunch of the old large fires, a lot of it is logging. The the logging industry has caused a lot of issues and is held in some manner of disrespect by a lot of environmentalists, but that's well earned. In In the past, a lot of our major issues in forestry came from how we managed forests and how we abused forests. So then 1800s, we had some large fires. The big spark point for how modern forestry was managed came in 1910, the big blow up. It was this huge, huge series of fires in the Pacific Northwest and all across the West. In the national forest system, 5 million acres were burned. And just at the time that was unprecedented. Fires typically weren't that big at the time. Fires were smaller. And just because of how we were using the landscape and just the right conditions, it was huge. So that started this change in how we approached fire. It started the debate between suppression
0: and management uh and that has continued to today so i just want to point out five million acres is kind of hard to imagine so for reference this year's august fire complex was in in california the huge one that was all over the news in august was one million acres so that's just to put that in perspective on how big five million acres is and that was just within northern california
1: yeah, so so I, and and that was a hundred years ago, and and today we're seeing even larger and larger fires. So at the time, five million acres was unprecedented. I don't know any specifics on how large one specific fire there was, but assuredly, I doubt any one fire was a thousand acres or a, a, a million acres. So then the big thing that happened was the Forest Service implemented the 10 a.m. policy in 1935, which the the entire policy was fires needed to be out at 10 a.m. the next day. That was the policy. And so that started an era of fire suppression that has lasted until today. We still heavily suppress fires. Most of the Forest Service budget, in re- recently there's been some reworkings, but uh, a huge budget goes to fire suppression. Now, part of that is because of social norms. In 1942, one of everyone's favorite Disney movies was Bambi, which, oh boy, has a devastating wildfire in it. And so public perception was fire is bad. Fire killed Bambi's mom. You know, like it's just, you know, spoiler. I, I hope there's no small children listening. And then in 1944, everyone's favorite fluffy bear came around, Smokey the Bear. And, or Smokey Bear is his official name, and started a campaign of, I'm sure you remember this, Adam. The The tagline for decades was,
0: only you can prevent forest fires. Right. And that was drilled into everyone's head. Everyone can recite that from memory. And we all just are conditioned to go, okay, fire is bad. These are all the things that tell me fire is bad. Fire destroys things. That's a very visible and obvious conclusion to draw from that. So I don't think people realize how that affects The ecosystem and you know the ecological impacts of it because of all the suppression i think that's a very important point that we need to to point out here is that because of all these things that we've been doing and i'm sure you'll get into more detail later because of all these fire suppression techniques we've had sort of an increase in these sort of severity of fires yeah so fire severity
1: has has just gone up and up and up and it's been a consistent increase it's it is nuanced there is there is some it depends in there and there's definitely some nuance um but these three policy these three things the 10 a.m policy bambi and smoky bear caused public perception to be that fire is bad And, and 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 here's the thing they're not wrong no absolutely like fire is scary fire is dangerous fire is deadly people die in wildfires people lose their homes people lose their livelihoods you know i'm not gonna sit up here and be like oh you know try and wash away all of that but there's a a perception that fire is not needed and it's not natural that is damaging how we can approach managing fire to try and prevent the deaths and the loss of homes and livelihoods. And that's what needs to be addressed in today's current climate. And part of, part of going back to the, 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 the ideal there and what people are thinking and how, how they approach fire, let's look at where European settlers came to or came from Europe to North America. Most of Europe, well, okay, let me roll that back. Most of the Northeast was industrial tradesmen after a certain point, And you had the, the large industrial cities, like this is all 1800s type things. And they didn't really do a lot of necessary land management, but also their forests in the Northeast aren't really fire adapted. Their fire regime, their fire return interval is maybe every 500 years. Like the Northeast just doesn't really burn the same way The West does. The South does burn. The South burns a lot. And in fact, uh, region eight of the US Forest Service has consistently done the most prescribed burn acreage for decades now. And and even before, like even like during the 10 a.m. policy and public perception against burning, they still burned. Part of that is because the farmers who settled in the South came from agricultural societies in Europe that did prescribed burning to clear fields. So they already had this localized knowledge of how fire is effective. And that, you know, obviously, and I'm using the word prescribed burn. Some people call it a controlled burn. Uh, The professional usage has primarily migrated to prescribed burn because we can't control burns. What do you mean by that? So fires always get out of hand. We can't, we do our best as, as, as firefighters and land managers to say, we're going to light this ridge off and have it burn down here. It'll catch through here. We're going to drop some fire in through here and we're going to burn out this area, but there's always a potential that it gets out of control. So to call it controlled in the first place is a misnomer. Got it. We are prescribing fire onto the landscape and we are using fire on the landscape. But in reality, we are never controlling fire on the landscape. That's that's what I mean by that. The, the language these days has shifted to calling it a prescribed burn because like in. F- Ooh, I'm going to say 2011, the Los Alamos fire in New Mexico was a prescribed burn that got out of hand and it burned homes. And it might have killed people. I think it might have killed people. So that's a devastating reality of fires are not controlled. The only controlled fire, and and I'm sure you see this on like CAL FIRE incident reports and the IWCG, there's... When they say controlled, that is a percent of the line, the fire perimeter that is out, is typically what that means.
0: I've always wondered what, how do you measure, like I always see on those reports like, oh, this this fire is, you know, X percent controlled. I always wondered what that meant because clearly it was still burning in some places. Yeah. And 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 the other
1: thing too is that's not also accurate at all. Like a lot of times firefighters will roll up and be like this fire, you know, it's the day 3 of the fire. The perimeter is out, but we're going to call it 80% controlled. Because it's not out. There's still interior pockets that are hot. Like on day 3 or day 4 of on my first fire, there was still stuff in the interior that was smoldering and smoking and hot and charred and just still Burning like there's still smoke coming up, but it's not going anywhere. So we're just there in a capacity to watch it and make sure that it continues to burn out the interior. But it was 80 percent. But really the perimeter. So when you start seeing control numbers, it's never really. There are standards for listing those things, but in in, in my opinion, they're they're never really that great. And I I'm gonna post note this as saying I'm not 100 percent on what they are, so I should look into it, and I will provide some more information in the the show notes about what those where those numbers come from, because this, I'm just speaking from experience on that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the phrasing that Cal Fire uses specifically, I don't know about other agencies, is contained. Mm. And I don't know that that's different or the same as c- controlled.
1: No, no. You know what? You know what? You're right. I misspoke. It's 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 percent of containment. You're absolutely right. So is that defined the same way? Yes. I mean, I think there's just a general shift away from controlled because it again, you're not controlling the fire. You're containing the fire. You're putting it out. You're suppressing it. Right. But you're still not controlling it. We're not there saying we want this tree to burn. Let's burn it. So I think it's just a general industry shift away from using the word control in any aspect. Okay, so wherever we were (laughs) public perception. Uh, So there there were people that used fires in the past. Uh, And they brought some of that knowledge over. But then the big thing happened was in the 1900s, we had two large world wars and America ended up being a hugely industrialized nation. And part of our industry was timber. So in the early 1900s, the US Forest Service was created to maintain and produce timber. That's why it's a part of the Department of Agriculture. Their job is to produce trees. That's their job obviously there's a whole other we can talk about the forest service later there's a whole other thing about it but that was why we needed them was to protect our timber resources so now we have a public perception against fire we have timber resources that need protecting from fire because fire burns trees and we need trees and after world war ii we have aircraft we have jeeps and we have a whole bunch of men who need jobs What do we do with them? We throw them into the Forest Service and they go fight fire. More nuanced than that, obviously, but that was the big start into really suppressing fires. And that went on from the 1950s to the 1970, and we just dropped off the amount of fires that happened in the US. From 35 million acres per year burned in the 1930s, it was less than 5 million acres a year in the 60s. So just a huge drop off. We're suppressing fire all over. There was some major death. There was some, they call them tragedy fires. gulch fire happened in that era. Then in the 60s, the son of Aldo Leopold, Aldo Starkey Leopold, I can't will throw that in the show notes, was a part of the Leopold Report, which was conducted out of UC Berkeley and Harold Biswell. I believe, made a report that basically said, hey, look, fire is good on the landscape. And that started this train of thought that, oh, maybe we've been doing something wrong. But this was starting out in the scientific community. So then 70s, we continue to have some large fires. And then in, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Sequoia National Park started a prescribed burn program. And it was the first of its kind. And they started using fire on the landscape more. And then the big moment in kind of public perception of big bad fire, oh my God, what's wrong, was the 1988 Yellowstone fires. People older than us, <laughs> I'm sure they remember these images, like it was just devastating. Uh, and everyone was losing their mind. Yellowstone was the crown jewel of our national park system, our Western idea of freedom and, and the American you know region, basically. And so when a million and a half acres burned in Yellowstone, that really started this entire change in in, in this idea of how do we manage fire? Because really part of the reason that fire was so bad was we hadn't been burning. Things got really bad. Now, Yellowstone has, again, a forest type that is designed to burn in a specific way but it hadn't been burning in that specific way. So again, it all depends. And we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and start talking about some of the current information about fire. Sounds good. Welcome back. So where we left off, Yellowstone burned and changed a lot of public perception. And just really briefly, this led to an entire change in management perception this led to a change in public perception to how we should be managing the landscape and managing fires and at present what we have is we have agencies we have scientists and we have members of the public who for the most part understand that something needs to be done what needs to be done well it depends Unfortunately, there's no catch all answer. There's some areas like San Diego and Southern California with high amounts of chaparral. And then there's other places where it's like an oak grassland. And then you have the dense spruce fir alpine forests and every forest burns differently. So everything that I've led up to where we're talking about fires, I don't want to set the wrong idea and like, oh, fire is good on the landscape. No, good fire is good on the landscape. It all depends and what we're seeing now and we have started seeing for the last really 30 years. Let's think about this. Yellowstone burned in 1988. That was 32 years ago. In the last 30 years, we've seen a lot more devastating, ecologically impacting fires that aren't good. And that's because of what we discussed before the break this long policy of suppressing fires in the western u.s and 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 really across the u.s so now we're in a situation where in the last 20 years i i don't have a citation for this but my understanding is is every western state west of the mississippi has had their largest fire ever on record within the last 20 years
0: i'm not surprised
1: yeah, it's it's, it's terrible. And, and I mean, when we're talking about Western Mississippi, we're talking like Texas, Missouri. Like even these states are impacted by this. But then California, something like the last, the, the top 10 fires in the state, I think one of them was from the 90s. I think it might've been, or the 70s. It might've been the Laguna fire. But f- I believe five of the top 10 were from this year.
0: So I have... A list of the top 20 uh, open here and let's see August 2020 2018 2020 2020 2020 2020 2017 2003 and 2012 2013 those are all the top 10 the list goes further and let's see number 13 is from 1932 and number 16 is from 1977 number 17 is Laguna is the one you were talking about in 1970 other than that every other fire happened in the past 20 years.
1: Yeah, the statistics really aren't, they're pretty plain to see something is changing and things are getting worse. And there's this entire buildup from our past history of fire suppression that is causing a buildup of forest fuels. And then we have weather and climate is changing and then we have tree stress. So that leads us into how does fire work And a general brief overview, this literally comes straight out of my introduction to wildland fire class, which was there's two main building blocks for fire. There's the fire triangle, which is what you need for fire to physically burn. And the three things are oxygen, heat, and fuel, those three things. And then you have the fire environment triangle, which is the three things that perpetuate a wildland fire which is fuel, weather, and topography. Now, when we are fighting fire and suppressing fire, the goal is to remove one of the three parts of the fire triangle. Remove the heat, remove the oxygen, remove the fuel. So think about removing the oxygen. What's in your standard run-of-the-mill fire extinguisher? it's some sort of carbon dioxide dust typically right um and that's because carbon dioxide does not burn it fills the void that oxygen and air would be filling and it extinguishes the fire because there's no longer oxygen for it to burn now this isn't getting into different classes of fire extinguishers that's a whole other conversation but removing the oxygen it's simple keep it simple yeah 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 uh, removing the oxygen heat how do we remove the heat well, you can spray it with water and water will cool it down. Water will also extinguish the ignition, but it'll, it'll cool it down because you have the whole heat transfer and evaporation and all of that that creates, removes, it's a, what an endothermic reaction that changes water into vapor. And then you can remove the fuel. And that's primarily where our wildland firefighting efforts fall is removing fuel. When you're looking at how fire is fought today, there's three main, we'll call them modules. Firefighters have a different thing for modules. There's wildland firefighting modules, but we'll just call them modules. You have vehicle-based firefighting, you have air-based firefighting, and we'll call it boot-based firefighting. Now, in vehicles, you have fire engines, you have water tenders, you have pump systems, you have hoses and lays and, and water support and bulldozers and just all manners of vehicles and efforts there. And so you'll see vehicles fighting fire through bulldozing long stretches of line across a hill slope you'll see vehicles pushing trees out of the way and removing the fuel source you'll see feller bunchers from logging cutting trees and moving them out of the way you'll see fire engines pumping water up a hill slope for firefighters up on the hill to spray on the fire then on the air side what you see is you see different classes of helicopters and different classes of air tankers so, anyone who's been paying attention to the fires in California recently, you'll see tweets about they're calling out for a LAT or a VLAT or seats. We don't use seats as much in California. Seats are single engine air tankers, they're like a little Cessna crop duster. LATs are a large air tanker, VLATs are very large air tankers. Um, v-lats have specific airfields they're able to fly out of because they are very large air tankers they're the the big boys lats have different air bases they are based out of and then we can kind of get into the boot based
0: firefighting so i had a question so would you say like i've seen i've seen like the c-130s outfitted to be i would assume that would be that would fall under the very large category i've seen um i think our local utility company has a helicopter that they they lease out maybe not lease out they they borrow to the local fire service i think they call it a sky crane or something would that be considered large or just normal sized so
1: helicopters there's they call them different types so i think there's a type one type two and type three i think oh yeah so so the the helicopter is is uh just because I'm a little more in the know about what our local utility is doing. Uh, The helicopter I believe is owned outright by the utility and they loan it to the local agencies and it is 100% based out of San Diego. It stays here. Yeah, Yeah. My understanding is it's one of the larger capacity helicopters in the area. So it would be, I think it's a type three. I do not remember and I don't have the information pulled up because realistically from a a lay, obviously I'm fairly professional into this thing, but I'm also a little bit lay person because I didn't work in air attack.
0: I didn't work with air support mostly. Like I don't really remember that's fair i mean it they're even if you're flying these huge tankers it's like you're dropping a lot of these f- fire suppressants on such a large area and the more i think you, the more you can cover quickly i think the faster it is that you can suppress these these out of hand kind of situations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so and and you mentioned like the c-130s i think the c-130s are lats i think the dc-10 is the v-lat i think c-130s are lats that's that's surprising i might i might be wrong on that but i would need to do some googling we'll throw some links to type definitions in the show notes for further reading if you're interested in that sort of thing but basically there's different classifications and the way firefight oh and well let's completely skip boots on the ground let me talk about boots on the ground so as far as on the ground firefighting goes there's i mentioned the engines and kind of threw them into the vehicle base but they also have engine crews on them and the crews will go out and they'll go and do line construction and, and bring hoses and 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 do pump lays and hose lays and and they'll do on the ground fire line construction but the the big bad boys that everyone thinks about when they think about on the ground firefighting is hotshot crews now hotshot crews are a type one hand crew now, a Type 1 hand crew means that they have training, they have leadership, and they have the certifications to be a Type 1 hand crew. And they are typically a nationally available resource, which means that they will bus around in their crew buggies. COVID is a whole other mess for that, but they'll bus around in their crew buggies and go and be assigned to various national incidents depending on what region of the Forest Service you're in. This is all this is all Forest Service firefighting, by the way. We will break down state firefighting a little bit, too, because there's some interesting things to talk about for California specifically recently. But the Forest Service, these are the things. So they're an interagency hotshot crew, basically. Type 1 IHC, because they'll apply, well, they'll apply it across the nation. And then what you have are Type 2 crews which don't necessarily have the qualifications to do everything that a type 1 crew does. So a type 1 crew may have several saw several saws that are qualified to be type C fallers which is the best classification of chainsaw operator. You can fall the big bad trees that are really dangerous to cut down because you have the training, you have the qualifications, you have the experience. You also have the leadership to get into dangerous situations and know what's going on and be safe. Well, let me, you have the leadership to not get into dangerous situations. (laughs) Let's back that up. Type two crews, don't necessarily have all the qualifications or leadership or training that a type one crew does. So they're not qualified to be a type one crew, but they feel the same thing. It is a 20 man crew and they go out and they work on digging hand line. Essentially, uh, they can also build brush lines. So you'll have the chainsaws running up and they'll be cutting a swath of 20 feet, 50 feet, whatever it needs to be. And they'll be working on that. Now, what you see with states is with states. Well, OK, let's hold on. Before we get to states uh there's other things in the federal thing obviously smoke jumpers are a very interesting method of firefighting that has captured a lot of imagination there's also some repelling that happens in the forest service so they'll helicopter in and rappel in and fight fire air attack crews typically handle that sort of thing
0: so i'm looking at the list of the interagency hotshot crews on the u.s forest service website and i'm noticing that most of these crews are in the southwest and in fact california itself has two huge lists of crews entirely dedicated to just california meanwhile the rest of the country has eight groups any reason any particular reason why that is well there's there's a few look one of the big ones so let's let's
1: break down forest service regions have different state coverages so the The Northwest region is Oregon and Washington. Region five is California. It has its own region. The Southwest region is uh, New Mexico and uh, Arizona. And then the Great Basin is Nevada, parts of Idaho. And then uh, Colorado is the Rocky Mountain. And then I think a little bit, I think South Dakota as well. And then, or that's Northern Rockies. Or no, Northern Rockies is Montana, some in North Dakota, and Wyoming, I believe, is the breakdown. I might be off on that, but that's generally the breakdown. So you can see how they cover different states. But the reason for the the hotshot crews being so different is partly because in the areas with really large timber fires, you need vehicles more than you need hand crews. But when you're looking at the Southwest and you're looking at California, there's a decent amount of grasslands and chaparral and scrubland that we can actually kind of fight with hand crews now don't get me wrong we fight fires with hand crews everywhere but when we're looking at the fire regime and how fires typically burn we when you have a large timber fire that's ripping and you have 300 feet of flame coming up the mountainside a little piddly hand line isn't going to do it you need a hundred feet of just bulldozed timber line And you can't really do that effectively with a hand crew. You need vehicles as well. Now, the other thing is, though, is when we're looking at a fire regime, different areas burn at different times. So agencies in California have to stay available later because we're in California. Things are burning into October. It is now almost November and things are still burning. Colorado got snow I mean, they have a very bad fire right now as well. Don't get me wrong. But Colorado got snow. That is typically the end of fire season. Like, there ain't going to be anything else burning. Obviously, that's not the case anymore, but it was. And so, their fire season is different. So, what happens, and part of the reason I mentioned that they're national resources for the hotshot crews. And really, every resource is a national resource. When your fire, when your uh, Forest Service district goes off of I don't remember the word for it, Uh, but goes off of like high fire danger. You can be dispatched to a different forest and go help fight fire there or be on standby there. So we move resources around nationally all the time for fire. And part of the concern right now is actually a blending of fire season across the nation and the inability to use national resources in different regions because they're needed at home that's a big problem that we're seeing right now and it's actually even worse than that because we're seeing it internationally we're seeing australia's fire season starting to overlap with canada and the united states fire season and there has been a long history of cooperation between these nations we fight fires together like there's i'm sure this last january there were images of American firefighters flying over to Australia to help fight their devastating fires there. That's I won't say it's normal because it's not, but it's something that is done because it's needs to happen. They need more support and we're willing to provide it with their allies. But part of the reason for California having a ridiculously long list of hotshot crews is going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast where we talked about the wildland urban interface there are more people, there are more houses, and they are more exposed to the threat of fire in California than almost anywhere else. So you need more fire suppression crews. It's kind of what that comes down to.
0: And it makes sense because every time I see, I go on, you know, Cal Fire's website and I go and see, oh, here's all the fires that are active. I always see, depending on the fire and its location, it'll be, this is a Cal Fire incident, or this is you know this is now a federal incident or this is a just a purely local incident and my understanding of that is it's because of it's kind of funny that we draw lines in the forest to go oh this is now a federal fire instead of a state fire but everyone needs to help to put it out regardless of whose fire it is so I just find that kind of interesting well the the big thing is always who pays for it uh, of course so so actually that that's a uh...
1: I was not a fire management officer or a contract officer and I did not have to be involved in the large high level interests between things, but I'm going to talk about my experience and my brief conversations and my understanding because I was a firefighter in Arizona. Arizona has local response agencies, state response agencies, and federal response agencies. I was on a federal forest service fire engine. The forest service only fights fires, that's not true. Uh, the Forest Service fights fires when federal assets are at risk. Now, what happens is, is we tend to have cooperative agreements with states between the federal government and the states to help fight fires. Now, once the fire starts threatening Forest Service assets, mainly being timber or any outbuildings or buildings, then the Forest Service is in full swing and is going to be suppressing that fire as much as they can. But Before then, they're cooperating with the local agency, and what that's called is a a unified command. So you have the state agency cooperating with the Forest Service. You have one incident commander, a team of people coming out, managing this fire, and and working together cooperatively. This is all part of the incident command structure, the unified command system. There's this whole big thing. You can actually take free classes from FEMA on how this works if you want to know about it. There will be links to that. But what happens is, is these local response agencies, for the most part, they're the ones that respond to fires. When you have a local response agency in Arizona, what was, was you have a local response agent, which is usually volunteer fire departments. Think about these rural areas. They don't have, you know, San Diego County Fire or San Diego Fire Department. They have the local volunteer fire department is usually what it is. They come in. They respond to the fire they're calling for assistance they're calling for backup what they have to do is they have to file with the state to ask the state to pay for it within a certain like literally within i think it's 24 hours of the fire ignition uh to the state to get the state to pay for it otherwise they'll like basically go bankrupt asking the feds to pay for it if the feds are cooperating so the local response agency shows up they're asking for help uh the forest service the state shows up they're helping and the paperwork all kind of typically gets worked out and everyone kind of helps each other but you do have areas where the volunteer fire department is the local response agency they are the ones in charge of responding to that fire it is their response area it is their fire what tends to happen is then the state will come in in Areas where the state has its state lands, the state management, they'll come in and, and the local agency will hand it off to them because this once the state takes charge, they're going to they're going to pay for it. They're going to take care of it. If they're asking for federal assets, there's agreements between the feds and the states, obviously, on how they pay for it. This is getting into the weeds, but it's also kind of interesting things. And like with Arizona, we had an agreement with the state of Arizona where like the first two hours of any fire suppression uh, incident, the feds would pick up the tab. And then if the incident commander for the state or local area was like, no, nah, we're good. We don't we don't need you here anymore. You're dismissed. They had to dismiss them after two hours. They couldn't keep them on the fire another hour because then the the, the local agency would be responsible for it for paying us back, the feds. So there's this whole thing about who's paying for what that defines how we fight fire these days. Uh, but that le- was leading into uh, California. Obviously, we have Cal Fire, uh, which is the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection or suppression something like that used to be california forestry but so cal fire does a bunch of things they have this huge huge fire suppression industry almost the same as as the forest service and uh so cal fire has this whole thing uh real briefly before we move on from it in the news recently you might have heard about how uh convicted felons can become firefighters i have heard that yes um So what it was, was if you applied to be Cal Fire, uh, Cal Fire is actually incredibly competitive. It is hard to get into Cal Fire. They really like seeing like EMTs, paramedics. Like it's hard to get into Cal Fire. What it was, was if you had a felony, you, you, you were excluded from that. What a lot of people don't understand is we have prison crews running on fires. And this year, part of the reason that the fires have been I won't say mismanaged, uh, but part of the reason it has been difficult to manage these fires is because we didn't have prison crews. Prison crews were isolated due to COVID. Oh, interesting. So we didn't have these prison crews because what, the, what the, the purpose of these prison crews is to act as additional hand crews to do things where we just need more manpower. Without the prison crews, we have type two hand crews and type one hand crews and Cal Fire hand crews that are doing these things when really they need to be doing the more specialized roles. They need to be doing the firing ops. They need to be doing these things, but they're digging line because we don't have the manpower to dig line. Prison crews fill a really essential role in how states fight fire. The feds don't have prison crews, the states do. Now, what the issue in California was, was after you got out, if you were on a prison fire crew, you couldn't join Cal Fire because you had a convicted felony. That's changing. That has changed, but I still don't, from a, a lay person, I still don't really see how many people are gonna get into CAL FIRE. Obviously, if you get the certs and stuff through being on a prison crew, you might, but that's that, that was the big thing that changed, was now these convicted felons can apply to become CAL FIRE firefighters. That's really all that boiled down to. We still have prison crews, we still have CAL FIRE, but now convicted felons can apply for that.
0: I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, you, you did the work, you have the experience you obviously you don't need that i mean maybe as much training as the normal person would need and basically proving yourself as you can do the work
1: yeah and 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 it's all and then we're gonna lead into a whole rehabilitation versus punishment in the prison system and judicial system which is a whole other podcast we should probably do let's table that a lot a lot of tabling a lot of tabling a lot of information
0: tables are made out of wood
1: so moving on from how we fight fire where is fire happening these days it's the same place as it's been happening it's just more people live there paradise more people moved in there it was always a mountain town but it grew you know and it, it burned over it's unfortunate and people died but that's where fires happen fires happen in the, the sierra foothills they've always happened there they're always going to happen there some of the concerns then are how do we address fire moving forward now because we're seeing larger fires. We're seeing more deadly fires. We're seeing more structures burned. We're gonna see higher ecological impacts. So when we suppress fires, there's the burned area emergency response. This is all for the feds. I don't know state things. Well, I know some state things. Uh, There's some federal agencies that supply state aid. They can apply for funding and get grants to like do uh, emergency watershed rehabilitation and all these things for flooding post fire. That happened in flagstaff after a couple of their bad fires but the burned area emergency response is designed to go in and, and kind of try and protect the landscape and, and rehabilitate the landscape but the thing that we're running into is is these fires now that they're burning out of season the seasonality of the fires changing trees are impacted differently invasives are more able to move in and we're just seeing much much bigger issues with how fires impact in the landscape and then There's the root cause of it all. Why is fire burning the way it is right now? Well, we discussed earlier about how public perception towards fire has impacted our fire policy and fire suppression. That's a big one. What has happened because of that is our fuel loads are huge. So if you think back to the fire triangle I discussed, we need fuel for fire. Well, with fuel and high fuel loads, you're gonna have worse fires. There's gonna burn hotter, they're gonna burn faster, there's just more things available to, available to burn. So things that need to happen are fuel treatments, fuel reduction treatments, more prescribed fire. But how do you do that in a place where it's next to someone's home? They're not gonna want you chipping, they're not gonna want you out there cutting down trees, they're not gonna want you burning next to their house. It really is just this incredibly hard and complex problem, and. There's no answer to it. And then the big elephant in the room is climate change. Because of our increasing droughts, because of our increasing temperatures, what we are seeing is higher stress in, in, in trees and in forest ecosystems. Now, simple things in climate change have huge impacts. Moving the the spring, the last spring frost up two weeks or the first fall frost back two weeks, that might mean a whole nother hatching of pine beetles that can get into and devastate more trees. You know, we have droughts that are killing off entire swaths of forest, and it's really a, a, a huge problem moving forward. Really quick before we have to end it, in the Southwest, in, in Arizona, the Mogollon Rim has projections for tree mortality that were built, I believe in 2017, and they're projecting out 50 years. In certain areas, they are already meeting their 50-year worst projected tree mortalities. It's 2020. Things are
0: bad. That's that's really soon. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's 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 really bad. Um, this is not doom and gloom, but it's doom and gloom. I,
0: I things There's are not really, really bad. a way around it. I don't think. Like living, you know, living in Southern California and and these sort of. I guess like in California in general, California has really nice weather, but we kind of take it for granted because people on the coast, they can be like, Oh, we're on the coast. This is not going to affect us. It is going to affect you eventually because as we discussed earlier, California is a chaparral. It's not as nice as you would think once you get outside of the coast. So that leaves you a lot of like, once these climate effects start moving, closer and closer to the coast, you're going to have more and more of these effects, I think. And we're going to see this problem is not going to go away. It's going to get worse and worse until we can do something about it, I think, rather quickly.
1: Yeah. as Personally, what I see the need for is major, major funding on forest treatments and forest management on a scale that rivals the, the new deal in in the thirties and forties. Like we can't do anything about helping these forests and preventing these wildfires and these deaths and these loss of properties without doing something on a massive scale. Because we have funding for prescribed burn. We have funding for fuel treatments, but it's, oh, you're burning 10,000 acres a year. And in the meantime, that same forest district has a fire that comes through and burns a hundred thousand acres.
0: Yeah, as we were talking, I did the math. Um within the month of August, based on that same list of the top 20 cal- largest California wildfires just this past August 2020, 3.4 million acres burned in California. Yeah. And remember we said for scale, 5 million in 100 years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I was 1910, the big blow-up. So it's
1: it's it's clearly become an issue. And, and I mean, there, there's no easy solution. But, I mean, the big thing is, is fire's natural. It was on the landscape. And part of the reason we're where we are today is because we managed it poorly. And now we're in a situation where managing it is really, really hard. Whenever you have a town council or a pug, I mean, heck, I was in a class out in a field trip. And we were, you know, dressed up as foresters because we're out there learning forestry and I had a hard hat on. We, we had some lady and her kid be like, you guys aren't gonna burn this area, are you? And it's like, well, no, but wow. You're in Flagstaff, which has one of the best forest service prescribed burn programs around. And the public is still just very anti-fire. And and, and it's it's understandable when, when things like our childhood in 2003, we had these massive fires, you know, it, it, people don't like fire. And it's really, really hard to get anything done to try to help that when part of the reason we have such large fires is because we
0: are suppressing them. It's this weird, weird problem. Well, I think this is a very enlightening discussion, Evan. Thank you for... For taking the time to describe all this to me i learned a lot i hope everyone else did too if you want to follow us we do have a website study.show. you can also follow us on twitter aces cases we also have an instagram for some reason thanks to my friend marin for providing us with the intro and outro voices we'll see you next time Case number, two, zero, two, zero, one, zero, zero, three, zero, closed.